ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This podcast is an extra to our usual programming and a departure because you get to hear me answering questions rather than asking them. What you're about to hear is an interview Daniel Denver did with me last week for his podcast, The Dig. Daniel was kind enough to allow me to re-release it as part of the SRB podcast. So here is me, your host, talking about Russia since the collapse of communism and how I understand Russia today. Enjoy. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future by James Bridle. As the world around us increases in technological complexity, our understanding of it diminishes. Underlying this trend is a single idea— the belief that our existence is understandable through computation, and that more data is enough to help us build a better world. In reality, we are lost in a sea of information, increasingly divided by fundamentalism, simplistic narratives, conspiracy theories, and post-factual politics. Meanwhile, those in power use our lack of understanding to further their own interests. Despite the apparent accessibility of information, we're living in a new dark age, from rogue financial systems to shopping algorithms, from artificial intelligence to state secrecy, we no longer understand how our world is governed or presented to us. The media is filled with unverifiable speculation, much of it generated by anonymous software, while companies dominate their employees through surveillance and the threat of automation. In his brilliant new work, leading artist and writer James Bridle surveys the history of art, technology, and information systems, and reveals the dark clouds that gather over our dreams of the digital sublime. New Dark Age, Technology and the End of the Future, by James Bridle, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Russia. The more your average American thinks about it, the less they seem to know. National security state-enthused liberals blame Putin for creating what is an obviously, if incomprehensibly, made-in-America monster. For his part, Trump can't contain his giddy enthusiasm for Putin's brand of hypermasculine authoritarianism. Meanwhile, it is quite clear that the reality of Russia, an actual country where roughly 144 million people live, has become mostly invisible to Americans, because it has been replaced by a caricature. 
My guest today is Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast, a weekly podcast on Eurasian politics, culture, and history, who works at the Russian and Eastern European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about Russia, the deep historical roots of its current crises, and the bizarre and dangerous state of U.S.-Russia relations. Before we get rolling, this podcast is no doubt a labor of love, but like most such labors, it still very much involves quite a lot of labor, meaning it's more or less my full-time job, and I can only put out these detailed and in-depth interviews analyzing everything everywhere, thanks to listeners, people just like you, who support us at patreon.com slash the dig. I should also note that I'm spending your contributions on making the show better for you. Recent interviews with Asla Bali and Boots Riley sounded like we've recorded them in a studio together. That's because we paid for a producer to record them in person in California while I was sitting in my studio in Rhode Island. What's more, a contribution of $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. For $20 or more, I've got a load of lefty books to send you. Okay, here's Sean Guillory. You can find episodes and subscribe to his podcast at seansrussiablog.org. Sean Guillory, welcome to The Dig. Ah, thanks for having me, Daniel. It's good to talk to you. This is going to be one of those absurdly comprehensive episodes. So I want to start out with a general question for you about the state of Russia today to set the table for all the detail we're going to be combing through. How would you assess Russia domestically and internationally? The contradictions of Russian political economy always seem like they're going to conclusively explode, and yet they don't. Putin remains in power <laughs> and with pretty high approval ratings. I would have to say that the political situation in Russia right now is fairly stable. Um, Putin just won re-election for his fourth term. There wasn't really much of a challenge, either certainly not electorally, but not even much of a challenge from society itself. The uh, Russian society seems to be resigned at the moment for Putin to have another six-year term. Um, the big question will be, and I think this will become more important in the next couple of years, um, when he when there's another election in, um, it will be 2022. Who? What will happen? Will he? Will he do something like he did in 2008 and step aside and put in a proxy just to come back? Will they change the constitution? Will they reconfigure the government structure to, for him to maintain some influential? Um, power or influence, some in influence over Russian politics, particularly over foreign policy. But I think those those questions are being kicked down the road as, as, as far as they can. Um, and I think they'll have to revisit that in the next coming years. Um, the big challenge that they are dealing with now is their proposed uh, pension reforms, where they want to raise the pension age. And this has actually gotten a lot of pushback from Russian society. There have been protests all over the country, ranging in provincial towns between one to 2,000 people. Um, this, is, this is quite unprecedented and important, I think, because Russian society itself is, tends to be 
uh, painted is quite passive. And if it is active, it usually is active because of a particular oppositional leader, someone like Alexei Navalny, for example. And what's really interesting here is that you're getting a lot of grassroots organizing and even a bit of pushback by some of the political parties in, in the Russian legislature. So, so much so that last week Putin finally made a statement where he didn't really endorse the, the plan of the government of uh, Prime Minister Medvedev's a plan to reform um, the pension system. Uh, so now it's kind of in limbo as to what will happen next. So right now it's actually a really interesting period domestically because you're, you're seeing the, the government, and, and a lot of people have suspected this for years, that, that the government is particularly sensitive to social economic questions and social economic protest. And, and and not so sensitive to pussy riot uh, desecrating an Orthodox church. In terms of of repressing that, no, um, they 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 don't. Political and civil rights issues aren't really a thing. The protests against those aren't exactly something they really concerned about or worried about. But they are sensitive, it seems, to economic uh, dissatisfaction, um, and they certainly are somewhat responding. And and there's some indication that. The next, uh, the next reading of this pension um, proposal or law will be somehow softened. So we'll have to see what, what, what happens there. Internationally, it's quite interesting because it depends on, on well, I, I'll just say domestically, uh, Putin and his government um, are, are basically unchallenged. Um, for a variety of reasons I'm sure we'll get into during this interview, but there's no imminent I mean, to even speak of a threat is putting not is going into an area which is inapplicable. There's no real political challenge, um, and I would even say the pro, the pension protests present a real political challenge uh, in the short term. Um, it, it's pretty solid in terms of their governance and control over society. There internationally is really interesting because it also depends on how you look. As we know, relations with the West and with the United States in particular are quite sour. Though there have been some interesting meetings, not only Trump's meeting with Putin uh, last week, but Putin has also met with uh, Angela Merkel and um, Emmanuel Macron, mostly around the Syria issue, but also Ukraine. But what's really interesting and doesn't get that much play here in the United States is Putin has been meeting and, and his, his officials, his top uh, foreign policy officials, have been meeting with Israel, Iran and Turkey quite actively over um, dealing with the solution in Syria, and particularly what the post-war situation will look like. And also, Putin has cultivated really good relationships with China, or at least trying to establish relationships with China, and India, and other parts of, of Asia, and the Middle East, too, in terms of, for example, the, the, the Prince of Saudi Arabia, or the King of Saudi Arabia, making a trip to the Kremlin for the first time ever a few months ago. So in terms of inter the international situation, while things are quite bad with the West, um, in terms of its relationships toward the East and, and its, its underbelly in the Middle East, they're actually quite good. We're going to get into a lot of that later on, but I want to turn back the clock a little to, to set the table for the rest of this interview, because to understand Russia today we really need to understand what happened in the early 1990s and the total shock that followed from the Soviet Union's dissolution. Um, and I'm going to pull some figures from from Tony Wood here. Between December of 1992 and June of 1994, 
16,500 enterprises employing two-thirds of the industrial workforce were sold off. GDP contracted by 34% between 91 and 1995. Average real wages fell by more than half. Murder rates doubled. Life expectancy fell. There were massive cuts to social welfare benefits and the rise of new geographic inequalities. And suddenly there were billionaires and there were paupers, both this kind of novel demographics in that were not did not exist under the Soviet Union. And there was the creation of this brand new elite, which was both smaller in number than their, than their Soviet predecessors and far, far richer. Mm-hmm. Explain what the Soviet Union's collapse did to Russia and to Russians. Putin um, is often quoted as to making this statement that the Soviet Union's collapse is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Um, now, I don't know if I would put it as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe, but it certainly is a great geopolitical catastrophe because you essentially had an empire collapse and an empire fragment, and that is the Soviet Union. Um, putting aside Eastern Europe, you also had the breakup of um, the Soviet Union itself into 17-odd, if my number is correct, independent states. So already, if you think of it in terms of ge- geopolitical terms, um, this is quite a, a shock in terms of a state collapse. Also, for a sense, too, you have to remember, like, for example, in Kazakhstan, you have very large Russian minorities that are living in Kazakhstan. And now overnight, once the Soviet Union collapses, they are um, foreigners at, in their own in a, in their own country, essentially. They're dismembered from, from the Russian Federation as such. The same in the so, Baltic countries. Yeah, and the same in the Baltic countries. So you can imagine how much – and I like, to, I like to call it – I like to think of it in terms of, of disorientation – this causes throughout society. And that's not even getting to the economic collapse. I mean, some of the figures you just rattled off, where it is it is a period in which the economy is rapidly changing and there, there are very few winners and there are many, many, many losers. And those who win are winning rather quickly. Um, there is an increase, and I think this is something that we also need to keep in mind in terms of the development of Russian capitalism in the 1990s, is that it is a very violent affair. Um, there are very strong links with organized crime um, because organized crime fills a vacuum that in many respects the state has retreated from or collapsed. Uh, so the the primitive accumulation of capital in the early 1990s is very much connected to a violent uh, criminal element um, that really establishes the kind of rules of, of capitalism to some extent. Um, and then the sheer loss of people's stature, um, you know, not just working class people who are employed at these many enterprises, but a whole Soviet middle class, many of them connected to, say, academia or the sciences or other professional educated jobs where their, their social stature is completely um, pulled out from under them. And here, of course, you get a lot of brain drain. Those who are able to immigrate to the West or immigrate to Israel or immigrate to Western Europe do because they're skilled and they're knowledgeable people. And they can certainly make a lot more money uh, abroad uh, than they could in Russia in the 1990s. And that very much continues today. Short term and most proximately, that's a crisis for the intelligentsia. But more profoundly over the long term, it's a crisis for Russia. 
It, absolutely. I mean, uh, that, you know, the loss, if you just look at the how uh, Soviet sciences, for example, were some were top of the world and 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 the state of Soviet science today, um, there's there's no comparison. So and and the the dis, and people literally, I mean, also, I think we need to think of it in a kind of cultural and even moral uh, ways in the sense of or even in terms of people's identities and that people's attachment to the Soviet Union, it, whatever one may say of its repressive apparatuses, it did provide a worldview. It provided a set of morals. It's provided a set of social practices. It provided institutions and communities. Um, these are all gone after the collapse and people literally have to redefine themselves because the old ways, the Soviet ways are now taboo and in many respects demonized in some quarters. And so the big question is literally, I think, who, who are we and who am I uh, as individuals, but also as a society? So people, and if you look at these narratives of uh, people's experiences in the 1990s, both journalistic and even academic accounts, it's quite striking how many people are re constantly reinventing themselves. To, to try to find a new life that fits within the, to stabilize themselves within this new chaotic order. And one thing that, one thing that's absent in this new chaotic order where you had the, previously you had the Soviet Union as the, the tribune of the international working class and people to some degree or another orienting themselves ideologically and, and making sense of their daily lives vis-a-vis that ideological framework that that collapses. So I'm thinking about just in the 1990s during this period of neoliberal triumphalism where there was everywhere this notion of there is no alternative and what that collapse of the very possibility of an alternative meant for politics anywhere. Yeah. That was on steroids in the in Russia. Yeah, I think that I think that's an important thing internationally is the, just the loss of that utopian idea. That that indeed another another you know world is possible vis-a-vis um, -vis, you know there is no alternative. I think that's a really crucial moment in a global ideological sense. Um, but you know you also have to think of it in in in, in terms for Russia in particular, um, the sense of it in terms of how one sees their place in the world as well, or even how you know w one can speak about the ossification of Soviet ideology in the 1970s and, and 1980s, which was very real. But nonetheless, I think there's something to be said even rhetorically important about the valorization of working class people and their efforts to say, build the state or to um, ideas of Soviet patriotism, which are rooted in, and you know, the, the, the really boosting up of the working class as kind of this historical agent of building communism or whatever. And defeating um, the Nazis, which is... Yeah, and then, of course, you know, if you add World War II into it, uh, absolutely, uh, which is a profound uh, historical event for that touched, you know, every Soviet citizen, one can, one can make a convincing argument, I think. So the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think, you know, it, its ramifications both domestically and internationally are, are incredibly profound. I mean, you can even think of, say, um, you know, places like Ukraine or Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, even the Baltic states, 
um, and and lesser extent some of the Central Asian states, this search for, again, the question of who are we, and a lot of these states, of course, turn to nationalist narratives or a revival of nationalist narratives that existed, you know, loosely in the 19th century and for a short period of time after the revolution in 1917 were, were squashed by, by the Bolshevik government. So it, in this sense, you know, Putin is right. Um, if you strip away his own kind of personal reasonings for painting it that way, I don't see how you can understand the collapse of the Soviet system in any other way. I mean, look at, look at the comparable with the collapse of the Russian Empire in 1917, or the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the historical ramifications and legacies of both of the collapse of those empires. I want you to explain a little more about the political economy of the privatizations that took place following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and also to explain to what degree the the IMF and U.S. advisors should be blamed for this mass kleptocracy and to what extent it was actually more of a process driven internally by Boris Yeltsin and his liberal allies? Um, it's definitely the bulk of, of the way privatization occurred is on the, you know, the fault lies within uh, reformist economists like Igor Gaidar and other people, um, Anatoly uh, Chubayas, uh, and people within the, the, the young reformers within the, the early Yeltsin government. Uh, who, you know, out of political expediency allowed for the loosening up of prices and then later the privatization of, of the Soviet economy into few and few hands. That was driven in many, many respects by political calculations, uh, particularly the privatization. Uh, and I can, I can go through that in a minute. Um, the role of the West, there is a definite important role um, and that role is essentially to really buy into its own ideology and look the other way into what was actually happening in Russia. And by buying into the ideology, I mean really, you know, holding on to this uh, this triumphal assumptional assumption that markets equal democracy and democracy equals markets. They didn't really consider the or even really care, I think about the actual situations on the ground in Russia as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, because the Soviet example, Union's collapse vindicated the American Western model and proved any other alternative wrong. So what could be, what could be wrong with a marketized <laughs> transition to democracy? Absolutely. That, that's absolutely correct. But, you know, as one scholar, uh, Stephen Kotkin, who's you probably people know him from his biography of Stalin that he's he's publishing, um, he, he frames it in terms of the 1990s as the Soviet system collapsing. It's not that this event happened and the next day it was a totally different world. You have the literal crumbling of those state institutions, the crumbling of that Soviet economic model and and really this idea that Russia would be transformed into some sort of capitalist liberal democratic utopia is, is completely a form of, to quote Stalin, dizziness with success. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, so the, the problem therein lies with, with the sheer 
um, you know, ideological support, the political support, and of course, the the economic support in terms of, you know, international inter, uh, uh, monetary fund loans, the role of Harvard economists and various USAID and other government, US government institutions, but also loans from the Europeans and things like this to to try to facilitate what I would call actually an attempt to and, and this goes to one of my problems with how Russia is viewed in general, uh, a mirror of themselves, right? This, this, and, and as you said, it's to vindicate more the American system than it, I think it is to build a, a, an equitable and democratic system in Russia. Yeah, explain a little bit more about the, 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 the results of that on the ground in, in Russia, how the kleptocratic ongoing process of dismantling of the Soviet Union, what that what that looked like and how it created these overnight billionaires. Well, it, the privatization can be can be kind of summarized in two methods. One is de facto privatization. And by this, I mean, you have an enterprise out in the middle of nowhere. You have a factory director that's politically connected to local potentates. And you have that factory privatized because that guy runs it um, and nobody else does. And then maybe you hook up with, you know, people who can enforce your ownership via violence through some sort of corrupt scheme. So you have, and, and I think this is the vast majority of privatization is indeed this de facto privatization. But the main privatization, and I think the lasting one in terms of building those very, very, very wealthy uh, people that were referred to as oligarchs in the 1990s. This is essentially a, a process that occurred because you had people like, say, Mikhail Horakovsky or Boris Berezovsky, who are um, starting banks and other economic schemes in the early, late Soviet period in the late 80s, when after Gorbachev um, legalizes the creation of cooperatives. And they start accumulating a lot of cash, and particularly Western cash, Western currency. So they have dollars. And they establish the first banks. I mean, Horakovsky really gets his start when he starts a bank. And as a result, these people are the only ones with a lot of hard currency. And when the government by 1994 and 1995 is, as, especially as Yeltsin's re-election is coming up in 1996, the government needs money. And they need ways to fund the Yeltsin's electoral uh, campaign. And what they do is they essentially engage in what's called a loans for shares process, in which these bankers uh, loan the state money or loan Yeltsin's government money in exchange for shares in oil, gas, minerals, the, the, the commanding heights of the Russian economy. But let me guess, the the shares are disproportionately larger than the loans that are being provided to the government. Absolutely. I mean, they're getting oil oil companies at basement bottom prices. Um, I, I forget the actual figures, but they're quite astounding. The other form of privatization, too, is essentially the idea of the privatize. So that's another I should say that there are three processes. They're de facto there's this loan for shares program, and then there's the general privatization. And that is essentially the idea that um, you calculate the, the, you know, the wealth of the Soviet economy, and then you issue the, uh, the population shares of equal amount, and then you have them essentially create markets in which they trade those shares. 
in order to accumulate various percentages within enterprises. Now, when in 1992, 93, when you have people who are struggling to find food and they're unemployed or they're not being paid wages because their enterprises can't pay them, and you essentially get in many places around the country a barter economy, you when the government issues you a piece of paper saying you have X amount of shares in the government in, a, in an enterprise, what does this mean to you? Especially if you have no history of this kind of, you know, financial entrepreneurialism. So what this allows is it allows people who are ambitious and have money to go around and essentially buy up people's shares. Oh my God. This is the exact (laughs) thing that happened in the United States after the revolutionary war, when speculators bought up IO wage IOUs from soldiers, from veterans. No, that's it's (laughs) wow. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and in an ideological way, it sounds kind of, you know, if you buy into this, you know, uh, the individual as an economic, a solely economic being that's always calculating his or her self-interest, you know, working from that theory, this is what the idea is based on, right? You divvy up the economy, people have their shares, and then they enter a marketplace. And then the market decides, well, yeah, the market did decide, but it decided because of, you know, poverty, it decided because of violence, um, it decided because of basic seizure of property and wealth, um, so this is the, you know, I think this story of the, accumul- the the primitive accumulation of Russian capitalism after the collapse of the Soviet Union is a very important one for giving the character of the way that system works really until the present, though it doesn't have all of these same trappings, particularly the violence, though it's still there, but not as widespread. But it certainly gives that economic system a certain character that is far more rapacious, I think, than what we imagine capitalism to be. Liberalism and statism in Russia are often portrayed as competing camps. But from what you've already said, we already have a lot of evidence that should lead us to be skeptical of that framing. And there's lots of other evidence that would be quite damning against that framing as well, such as liberalizer Boris Yeltsin shelling the Duma to ram Mm -hmm. through his agenda and stealing the 1996 election. Are these really two opposed? This is a leading question. (laughs) Are these really two uh, opposed elite polls? Um, I want to quote from Ilya Medvedev writes that, quote, the myth about the struggle between the statists and liberals with Putin as an arbiter is still popular. In actual fact, there is no conflict. Instead, it'd be more accurate to talk about the division of labor. Do you agree with this assessment? And if so, what was the division of labor created created under Yeltsin? And how did Putin later redivide it? I think in the 1990s, the division between those two forces is, is almost um, insignificant. In the sense of you know, the dream of, of Russian liberals in the 1990s, and now not for all of them, but I think there is a certain currency, and, and Ilya mentions this in his article uh, when he quotes one of them, was for a kind of Pinochet-type situation where you use the state and clamp down on any efforts of, you know, certainly any kind of social democratic pushback or even pushback from the Russian Communist Party uh, to force feed the population um, a market economy, you know, a neoliberal economy. Um, 
And so you have to, in this sense, in this period of, you know, as Naomi Klein called it, the shock doctrine, where society is disoriented and this opens up space to accomplish political goals that you wouldn't otherwise be able to accomplish without a lot of pushback. Um, this requires the use of the state apparatus to engage in these this kind of forms of um, pushing forward for these neoliberal reforms. Now, the problem, I think, in the Russian case, however, is that the state apparatus, uh, the repressive apparatus of the state in the early 1990s has been essentially to some extent privatized. And by that, I mean, you have elements that were former or connected to the security apparatuses that are doing their own thing in many respects and hiring their service out to a variety of different wealthy types of people. Um, but nevertheless, there, the pushback that Yeltsin gets by the communists and the nationalists in the Duma uh, in the 1992 and into 1993 really comes to a head where Yeltsin has to essentially turn to the military to put, put down this brewing uprising. And as a result, and this is the thing I think people forget when we think about Putin, the possibility of a Putin or uh, the office of the pres Russian presidency was a direct outcome of Yeltsin shelling the White House in 1993. This allowed for the putting forward a new constitution. This allowed for that constitution to be configured in a way where the Duma or the parliament is um, has less power and the creation of a super presidency. Um, without this authoritarian impulse by Yeltsin in 1993, acts one should be reminded that we're completely justified and protected by Bill Clinton um, and cheered on, um, allowed for the creation of today's authoritarian Russia. Uh, so in that sense, the, the liberal status model doesn't really exist in the 1990s. Now, I agree with Ilya to a certain extent that one can overblow these factions with under Putin and Putin kind of stands as this, as this arbiter. And really it's by liberals in this sense, we don't mean people in the street like oppositional liberals. We mean these kind of technocratic liberals in, in the government. Um, there is certainly tension between these various groups, um, but they still play their important role. So, and you can see that right now with the, the, the pension reform, where the plan to put forward pension reform is, is basically created by technocratic liberals, people like Alexei Kudrin, the, uh, Putin's former finance minister. And then the apparatuses of the state or the repressive mechanisms of the state will make sure that, you know, there isn't any loud social protests that get out of control or at least use that repressive apparatus to neutralize any potential you know, leaders that emerge out of these social protests. So in that sense that um, liberal, neoliberal reform in Russia does employ both sides. They're both, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration in terms of the contours within Putin's government. This division between liberals and statists seems to color a lot, in particular, American thinking about the Russian opposition. Take the, the oligarch uh, Mikhail uh, Horkovsky, who you've mentioned before, who 
was the head of this oil company, Yukos. And he was in the West, I think, hailed as a sort of dissident after he was expropriated and imprisoned. But in reality, as you mentioned or uh, suggested, he, he was one of the most avaricious and successful primitive accumulators of the Yeltsin years. He picked up Yukos yeah. oil as part of this one of these massive loans for share schemes that you were discussing. And the same goes for Boris Nimsov. He was a first deputy prime minister under Yeltsin who was assassinated in 2015. And I went and looked up the, the New York Times coverage to make sure that I was remembering the, the way he was portrayed after his assassination. And what the Times wrote is that his murder had, quote, ended his two-decade career as a champion of democratic reforms. Mm -hmm. Are these people really the, the heroes they're made out to be? And what does it both say about Russia and our, the way Americans tend to interpret it, that these people are, are held up as noble liberal truth speakers? Hodorkovsky, I mean... He, I, he could be he could be I think easily kind of put aside and and written off. I mean he is he he certainly tries to fashion himself as some sort of um, direct challenge to the Russian government and Putin in particular, and that because essentially the Putin government expropriated him and then divvied up his company amongst its you know Putin's people. Um, you know he he was a victim of the very same type of of economic processes that he allowed him to become wealthy in the first place. Um, so his, his posturing now, um, now granted, I'll give, I'll give Hodorkovsky a little bit of credit in the sense that he was in the process by 2002 and in 2003, right before his arrest was in the process of turning the, uh, the changing the culture of his oil company and, and and a lot of these these oligarchs have tried to do this in the sense that they create they create charities they try to um, become more responsible citizens they try to clean up the culture within their corporations and particularly a lot of these oil companies and and, and Hodorkovsky is a perfect example of this you know if you want to deal in the international market or you want to deal have you know cooperation with western companies you have to put on a you have to create a certain image of the company which means moving through the typical standard capitalist mode of development of of uh, leaving behind brazen expropriation and primitive accumulation and having hiding that beneath the veneer of mere exploitation it, exactly exactly and uh, there's been some pretty interesting literature that's been written uh, studies that are looking at the role of of um, you know non-governmental organizations and charities that are created by these companies uh, in in various provincial regions in Russia, but so let's put Hodorkovsky aside, um, and then now of course now that he's free, he has this open Russia um, uh, organization that does various work. But there's no there's no the point being for Hodorkovsky is there is no domestic constituency of any note for him. Nemtsov is a different character. Um, Nemtsov did have a, a, a brief limelight. He was a, a, a governor or a representative from Novgorod, where he came from, and then he was pulled into the Yeltsin government, and he was kind of seen as one of these up-and-coming new Russian politicians in the mid-1990s. But after uh, Putin uh, sidelined a lot of these Yeltsin people, um, he, Boris Nemtsov, basically most of his energies were directed towards street opposition and tried to organize democratic reforms. 
Um, I think he was actually a very sincere character, even if I agree with disagree with his politics. But for a lot of these oppositionists in the 2000s, um, he's quite emblematic in the sense of the Russian opposition liberals, uh, those who are outside of the government or any kind of state apparatus, they uh, mostly made a political appeal for civil uh, rights, for political rights, and to some extent, um, you know, good working of government, transparency, and anti-corruption to uh, some extent in the 2000s. Which is revealing, it's revealing on two levels. One, because they played such a, a role in developing the statist liberalism in the in the 1990s that made Putin possible, that made the monster that eventually devoured them possible. And, yeah. and two, um, you know, it reflects a an ideological limit of of this sort of liberalism of not being able to to see beyond a sort of institutional critique exactly exactly and and i think this is one of the the main problems that persists in the liberal opposition in russia to this moment and that is they uh they their ideologically precludes them from making strong inroads into things that affect russians daily lives and that of course, is mostly social economic questions and issues of govern local governance is another one. Um, corruption is another one, and that they've you know Alexei Navalny has made the most success out of beating the the anti corruption pulpit, uh, and that communicates, of course, to m- more people. Um, but Russians, by and large, in my sense, aren't totally concerned with issues of democracy, uh, mostly because democracy was given such a horrible name in the nineteen nineties. You know, it, it was it it because of the way Russian democracy developed in con- in the context of the privatization of the Soviet economy and the dismantling of that economy and the creation of this oligarchy, and then being told we're democratic now. One you can see how they could walk away with a total distaste for you know what the West says is democracy. There's a huge irony here and I don't want to get too much into US Russia relations right now because there's a lot more about that I want to cover later but in the very way that that the Russian opposition fails to speak to people's substantive material needs by focusing on these liberal institutional norms and a Russia without Putin American MSNBC liberals currently obsessed with with Russia are also failing to speak to Americans <laughs> substantive material economic concerns and are instead droning on about a leader of a country far away from here that that your average american could could care less about couldn't care yeah. less about i mean it's it's ironic and even tragic because you know the russians at least the russian liberals are at least you know they're working under political conditions that are highly highly hostile yeah they actually live in russia <laughs> yeah they actually have to deal with you know being searched and in nemtsov case being assassinated you know, gunned down yeah. out you know across the street from the kremlin i mean this is the thing like you know mbc msnbc liberals don't have to deal with you know getting put up on at least not yet being put, given <laughs> trumped up charges and being thrown in prison like you know alexei navalny or even worse his brother oleg being held hostage in prison by the russian police so yeah it's iron is certainly ironic and it's also tragic yeah yeah the <laughs> so. russian opposition's failure on this count is far more understandable 
given the repressive conditions they're operating under. Exactly. So I want to ask more about the opposition. There have been upsurges of protest on occasion in recent Mm -hmm. years, Um, perhaps most notably during the winter of 2011 and 12, when there were massive protests against election fraud and Putinism more general. Who was protesting in terms of their demographics? What were their politics? And what sort of threat did they pose to Putin, both objectively and from Putin's perspective? Because it, it, mm-hmm. in the Western media, they were very much celebrated as members of an ascendant middle class who demanded a normal Western life. People that Western yeah. news consumers like you and I could and should identify with. Just to comment on, on that image, because it's something you asked in the last question. Um, there is a tendency amongst American reporting uh, I think, and to some extent, the British reporting, um, I can't really speak to what the French and the Germans are saying, but at least in the English language reporting, there is a, a, a desire uh, and constant tendency to to, ice, to locate and identify what I call the new revolutionary subject for Russia. <laughs> you know, with the protests in 2011, it was this so-called uh, new creative class, these urbanites young people in their mid-20s and early 30s at most who were essentially raised under Putin. I mean, they're Putin's children in many respects, who who come from a fairly stable mid- Russian middle-class life. I mean, their families, for all intents and purposes, a lot of them became middle-class because of the economic boom in the mid-2000s. Um, but in terms of demographics, it's, it's hard to pin down um, because... It's certainly in the urban centers where the, most of the protests were concentrated, you do get a lot of um, these kind of young, uh, professional, educated types, for sure, who are kind of dissatisfied with the political situation. Um, but you also get a whole element of others. Uh, younger people, you get a lot of people who've been um, hard hit by the 2008 economic crisis in Russia. Um and what's interesting about the 2011-2012 protests is that I wouldn't characterize it so much as a social economic protest, as though there are certainly elements of that in that because it was a very broad spectrum across the political spectrum in Russia. Um, it was really a response to um, a humiliation on the part of Putin. When he announced in September 2011 that he was going to run for a third term, this sent shockwaves. This was after the uh, Med- Medvedev uh, interregnum. Exactly, exactly. There was an, and, and the press at the time, the Russian press at the time, was full of these debates of, you know, what's going to happen? Is Putin going to come back? Is Medvedev going to have a second term? Um, and, and the fact that he so brazenly you know, and and Medvedev himself meekly stood aside for Putin to run for a third term was an affront to the educated, politically um, connected, or I should say politically invested elements of the Russian population. It was a reminder that the state is going to tell them the way things are going to run, and they are only passive elements within Russian society. And it revealed the years under Medvedev and all every all of the pretensions of those years to be to be a farce. Exactly. Exactly. Because you had you had people who were opposite who went in protests who were openly advocating some of the kind of liberal minded media openly advocating for Medvedev to have a second term. 
Um, and then to top it off, the spark for this protest were, was the blatant, fraudulent parliamentary elections in December 2011, which just made that all existing feeling even worse. It, 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 it served as a mobilizing factor. Now, the, this, the protests are a really interesting moment because they were massive in Moscow and in St. Petersburg. They didn't really filter too much into the provinces that effectively. And this allowed uh, Putin, in my view, to essentially play a Nixon card where he pitted the urban middle classes against the Russian everyday man. Um, he, he basically did his own version of the Southern strategy. And where silent, he, silent majority. Yeah, and the silent majority, exactly. Silent majority is actually a better term than the Southern strategy. I forgot that one. Yeah, he, he pitted the silent majority against those, you know, and, and he slandered the, these urban intellectual, you know, urbanites, uh, on TV, he he really did play, I think, a masterful political role in undermining them as a legitimate political force in the eyes of society. Even more like Spiro Agnew esque than Nixonian. Yeah, 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 sure, right, exactly. Um, and then the other things that they did is that then they they to to suppress this, and this goes to the the, the actual threat to the Putin system is hard to gauge. I think what it the reaction of Putin personally and his government in general was one of shock and also just offense. I think Putin was personally offended, but the shock I think was something they didn't anticipate. Um, and so they, you know, undermine them as a political force and then surgically repress them, uh, particularly after the Bolotnaya protests on Putin's inauguration. Uh, you know, they came, the, the security services came down hard on um, about 30 of these protesters, uh, jailed the leftist Sergei Gudolzov for four years, and then targeted the liberal leaders with house, house arrests and or searches. Then the other side of it is, of course, these protests, the leadership of these protests represented a broad ideological spectrum of liberals, nationalists and leftists. And they just couldn't, it, it, it eventually just broke, their efforts to maintain unity um, broke down uh, into the typical backbiting and internal fights and disagreements and arguments. Uh, so they kind of killed their own um, potential. And then also the other, the other thing that I would say too and why these protests ultimately failed is they, they didn't build any institutional or they weren't successful in building any institutional um, uh, uh, representatives of the, of the protest movement. It, it merely, at some point, you know, when you have these protests, how many more protests can you have before it begins to, the whole purpose begins to die out, right? And the government is in the advantage of kind of waiting out that momentum to lose steam. Uh, and the fact that they didn't, they didn't, the opposition didn't form any lasting institutions, even under the repressive atmosphere that they exist in, I think is what led by 2000, the, by the summer of 2012, uh, these things really kind of collapsing and not having as much power. Where does that leave the opposition today? And we haven't mentioned in any detail, at least, 
Alexei Navalny. This is the other key thing about these protests is that you also have a changing of the guard of the op- of oppositional politics. People like Boris Nemtsov after 2012 just don't have as much cachet as they did before. You get the appearance of um, a new generation of opposition political figures, journalists, and, and pu- publicists, things like this, and people like an activist like Alexei Navalny, um, who really come to the top. And, and by the end of this protest cycle, Alexei Navalny is the de facto kind of figurehead of Russian opposition circles. Um, and he is, there are attempts to try to use his popularity to kind of present a you know, fair elections, say, for the Moscow mayorship, right? They allow him to run, but then they are startled when he wins 20% of the vote. <laughs> so then they start the repressive apparatus to 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 kind of quell his ability. But, I mean, he, you know, he deserves a lot of credit because he's an incredibly tenacious figure. I mean, he is, he's, you know, kept up his pressure, his anti-corruption work. He's, you know, solely responsible for, painting um, Russian government uh, figures as wholly corrupt, uh, expose them. He's, you know, he, his, his expose on Dmitry Medvedev last year was, was a a, um, conversation changer in Russian politics. Uh, You know, his polit, his personal politics himself is under a constant transformation he he was very nationalist before. And xenophobic. He's less national and xenophobic. He's he's kind of tried to shed a lot of that. Um, I don't know if it's cynically or what. Um, he's tried to adopt a more social economic message, um, not incredibly successfully, but he's been trying. Um, but the, he, and he's he's created. He's been the only opposition force that's actually created an apparatus of network of offices and activists around the country that get, you know, their heads knocked in all the time. Um, so he, and he's a, he's a very effective figure. Uh, the problem is, of course, is that he doesn't, his social base is very thin um, for a variety of different reasons. One general question on this subject is, if you could say a little bit about how repression operates vis-a-vis other forms of power, like hegemony, corruption, patronage. My understanding, for example, is that the internet is relatively free, not so much for newspapers. Opposition candidates do occasionally win important positions, but there are also serious roadblocks. There is electoral fraud, but Putin would still win without it. How does it all work? (laughs) Repression and co-optation and even hegemony, which is a harder question, it, it depends on the, the class of people it's used against. So just to give, for opposition figures, the, op- the, the use of repression is pretty surgical um, in the sense of it's, you know, jail leaders or trump up charges, make their life hell, harass them, uh, you know, deny, you know, Alexei Navalny, for example, has been trying to register a political party for the last year or so. And every time he's denied, when you have uh, candidates that are trying to run for office, you use the signature system to deny. I mean, it's similar in some respects to the United States, where you just you have to collect a certain amount of signatures and then they declare the, the signatures are, you know, they throw them out. 
So there's all sorts of roadblocks of both kind of soft repression and hard repression. Um, I think the use of hard repression has been far more discriminant than in the past, um, particularly after Nemtsov's murder. Uh, I think that that was a kind of wake up call uh, in terms of the use of repression, um, or at least you know, sanctioning the use of repression by various elements in in the Russian political class. It was a form of repression that was seen as more licensed in, say, Chechnya than than in Moscow. It, it, it was it was yeah it was seen as a more entrepreneurial form of repression <laughs> uh, that was was quite frowned upon amongst many even within the Russian security apparatus and government. Um, so I, I think they 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 they're pretty good at this point. I think of of keeping the Russian street opposition from gaining much traction through a variety of different mechanisms. In terms of society as a whole. I mean, a lot of it is just it, the the Putin social contract is, and this is from the 2000s, um, and that is, you know, we're going to bring you economic prosperity and the good life, and then you stay out of the business of politics. Um, that social contract is always is under more um, tension right now because the economy isn't as bountiful um, with, you know, international oil prices being so low. Uh, and so... That I think one of the challenges that Putin's government is going to have in the coming years is to try to justify its own existence to the public in terms of, you know, what life are they providing for the Russian public? And more importantly, what future? Um, they were able to do this in the 2000s quite effectively to at least enough people within the Russian population. Uh, but now I think that's that's much more difficult for the elite. Um I, and then, of course, is is the media. Uh, Russian television is is fully controlled by the state of of, of any note. There is a um, a pretty vibrant um, uh, newspaper media um, that's quite good and doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, it it certainly can't go in certain directions. Like, for example, if you report on Putin and his family and their corruption, then you're going to get closed down. So they established kind of the government allows for certain parameters of acceptable reporting and those shift and contract and widen depending on the current political situation. Um, and it also acts as similar to how the Tsarist press acted um, before 1917. And that is basically allows for, um, you know, it's a safety valve of sorts. It allows for, you know, liberal minded or educated people to kind of vent and uncover small instances of corruption and this kind of stuff and debate. And, and but in terms of its policy influence, it's it's not that great. Um, the elite gets another type of um, use of control, and that is essentially I would I call it as the parameters of acceptable theft. So this means we know you're corrupt, you know we're corrupt, um, and corruption allows us to maintain loyalty. And every once in a while, we have to adjust the parameters of, of acceptable corruption. So if the, the elites are stealing too much, then they crack a couple of heads and readjust what's acceptable theft. It also creates a situation is you can steal, but when we call on you, uh, you have to answer. It creates kind of a feudal relationship. So, for example, during the Sochi Olympics, you had a lots of pressure on a lot of these rich billionaires to invest in construction projects, which weren't profitable for them, 
they were able to skim off the top, but they had to answer to the the um, the calling of the Russian government. So they have kind of, in some ways, a feudal relationship between Putin and his the top top business elite. I want to talk about about gender because Putin's performance of a particular sort of masculinity seems really key to how the regime is legitimated. And it's also something that I think is one of the things that Trump likes most about him. Yeah. It, it, explain his this performance of masculinity and whether or not it, it's rooted in the political economy of, of, of gender in the post-Soviet mm-hmm. context where, where inequities between men and women in both politics and the workplace explode. You have labor markets squeezing women out at the same time that social assistance is slashed, mm-hmm. meaning that women are expected to pick up that slack by way of uncompensated domestic labor. I mean, there's just an entire transformation in the politics of gender in Russia. Mm-hmm. This is actually really interesting, and some people have written about this quite effectively. But essentially, you know, think of it this way. And I, I like to do this when I show these classes on the Putin. I do a lecture on the Putin cult. And one of the, the elements of this lecture is about Putin's masculinity and the body. It's himself. Because if you look at some of these clips, for example, of Yeltsin in the 1990s, of him like falling over drunk, of, you know, him being kind of a buffoon. Um, and then you have this young guy, and he's kind of a symbolic of the system itself, right? The collapse of the Soviet system is kind of the weak on the international stage, uh, the rampant alcoholism within Soviet society, a real crisis of masculinity, really, in the 1990s. And that goes along with a whole bunch of identity crises within society itself. And here comes this guy, Putin, who, you know, becomes president in 2001, is young, he's fit, He's a black belt in judo. He plays hockey. He's, you know, good looking. Um, Great abs. And he's, yeah, he's kind of the opposite, the anti-Yeltsin in this sense. He's also his career in the security services, which has a whole myth around it in Russia. Um, You know, not unlike, you know, the myth of art, you know, James Bond or the myth of the FBI in the United States. Um, Here he comes and he's kind of the, as his physical form and his demeanor, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. At least he doesn't drink like to the point of, you know, public inebriation. Um, He's kind of the anti-Yeltsin in this sense. So he becomes not only a, um, his body himself, his masculinity is symbolic of a restoration of Russia and also is a model for what a Russian man is supposed to be in a period in which everyone is wondering what Russian man, a man is supposed to be in Russia. Right. And it's really interesting because you get a couple of part of this Putin cult, you get a couple of these like pop videos, pop songs in the mid 2000s singing about how I want a man like Putin, a man who doesn't drink, a man who won't leave me, a man who won't beat me. I mean, this is I think has really symbolic currency. I'm guessing alcoholism, which, you know, is a problem generally in Russia. I imagine that it skyrockets in the 90s. And given what tends to happen anywhere, I'm guessing that the political economic crisis plays out in in a lot of domestic violence absolutely yeah all of these things um you know the 1990s is is really um a period of of social uh breakdown of of across the board and so his performance of masculinity i think is in some ways that it's also a performance of masculinity that that 
positions him as the leader, both in terms of a a father figure, a disciplinarian, but also a guy in charge, right? And you see this yearly with his uh, call-in shows where he does these, you know, amazing four-hour, like, question-and-answer things that are broadcast on television where he's dealing not with the big kind of policy of the Russian Federation, but the minutia of people's everyday lives. Um, And... So there's that, like you have a a solid guy at the top, a stable guy at the top. And then on the international stage, his masculinity plays an important role and symbolic of a restoration of Russia's great power status. So, yeah, I think it's it's it it works these multiple levels. Um, And then, of course, you know, his own kind of personal image and his own personal cult. Um, My question for him is that if he's ever going to undergo the transformation that Stalin did, <laughs> where he became grandfatherly in all the representations after his 70th birthday, at, at a certain point, you know, you can't portray him as this kind of masculine superhero because his age doesn't, you know, match. And you certainly can't play the kind of sexual aspect of it with these young girls kind of fawning over him because then it just begins to look even more creepy than it actually it already yeah, does, the, the, right? The so, virility has to fade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think at some point in his, you know, if he's, if Putin's going to continue to be with us <laughs> in a, you know, after this term or even towards the end of this term, I think there's going to have to be an image transformation where he's going to be, you know, transformed into a kind of grandfatherly figure of, or some sort like that, right? This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives, work, knowledge, home, politics, have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The Amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. I want to ask another historical question about the development of Russian political economy and Putin's governance in particular which is about the role played by two major financial crises. First, there's the ruble crisis of 1998, which is a huge currency devaluation, and it's followed by a boom in energy prices. This is the context within which Putin builds his new state, 
And it's a moment, if I remember correctly, that a lot of Western media was was cheering Russia's arrival. And mm-hmm. and then comes the 2008 financial crisis, which is obviously devastating all over the place. But for Russia, even more so, it occasions a huge collapse in the oil prices. And Russia ends up with the largest economic contraction of any country in the G20. Can you say a little bit about how these crises shaped Russian political economy? 1998 is is really significant because um, for, it, it does two things. First off, it, it discredits a lot of the um, hard line market reforms in terms of the price and, and particularly the free market without the role of the Russian state as a, as a regulator. Um, I think there is a consensus amongst the economic elite in Russia that the Russian state is an, an absolute essential um, arbiter of not only maintaining stability, political stability, but also maintaining economic stability and financial stability, right? Particularly over the ruble and um, Russian state budgets. So what comes out of that is is that one thing. First off, is that you know you're somebody's going to have to put be put forward to replace Yeltsin. Um, I think this is really the shock that allows for the search for a replacement. Um, and that replacement is going to have to be a consensus candidate within various aspects of the Russian elite. And by that, I mean the top economic elite, the so-called oligarchs, uh, Russian regional governors, and the security apparatus. And Putin is that guy. Um, and then, of course, he's, he's aided by uh, some you know, really opportune terrorist attacks that occur to boost his national stature and popularity. Um, but I think one of the things we should, when we talk about Putin, and I insist on this a lot, is that we we shouldn't see Putin as an individual as much as we should see him as a, a representative of a class. Um, and that is, and if you look at the reporting and the, the views of Putin in the early 2000s in Russia, but also in the West to some extent, is that of a reformer and most importantly, someone who's going to provide this a state that's going to buttress the wealth and prosperity of that economic elite. Now, what Putin does, and this is another significant move for his the development of his political economy, is he cuts a deal with these guys, all of these oligarchs. And you can see those who fell and those who didn't fall, those who are still around and those who aren't. He basically gathered them all together in a very famous meeting where he told them, look, we all know how you got rich. We're not going to renegotiate the terms of the 1990s. We're not going to revisit privatization, but you are no longer welcome to participate in Russian politics unless we call on you. And you have to subordinate yourself to the state. You can become rich, but you have to res- you have to respect the state and the politics being the realm of the state. Those who follow this, like you know, Roman Abramovich, uh, Oleg Deripaska, uh, are doing fine. And they're helped by the state when they need it. Uh, people like Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who continued to fund Russian political parties, got smacked down and arrested. And the others were driven into exile. Um so this is the this is the kind of social contract he made with the Russian elite that I think continues to persist this today. I just saw a statistic a few days ago 
that in 2016, there were 77 Russian billionaires. Today, in 2018, there are 103. Wow. You know, when we even think about the sanctions, right, the whole point of like American sanctions on Russia is the idea that if you put stress on the economic elite, they'll somehow, you know, form a palace coup and change, get rid of Putin or force the change of some sort of behavior. Well, it sounds like the opposite has actually happened in terms of consolidating Putin's power, and it really hasn't affected the accumulation of wealth of these, you know, rich guys. Um, so that's, I think that's the this 1998 period to Khodorkovsky's arrest in 2003. Luckily for Putin, he got the big boom in oil prices. 2008 is like, as you said, is a major contraction on the Russian economy. And what the Russian state did is they essentially bailed every, they had enough reserves um, because they practiced a lot of fiscal discipline and austerity into 2000s. They put it basically made a, a national fund. They put a lot of money into a savings account. They paid off all their international debt. And so when businesses started and banks started to crumble in 2008, the state propped them up and basically rescued all of the rich oligarch, all of the rich um, uh, entrepreneurs. Now, I think what's important about the Putin cis political economy, and here you can compare it to, say, a place like Ukraine. Um, we like to speak about, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, we like to speak about Russia having oligarchs. Russia doesn't have oligarchs. Oligarchs, in my definition, are, are wealthy people who exercise political power. You don't have those in Russia. You have them in Ukraine. You have them in and the this United is why States. Had, you have them in the United States. This is why you have political turmoil. And you have business people playing a very vital role in the shape of national politics. I mean, Ukraine, for example, has encountered two revolutions because of oligarchs. Uh, Putin got, got rid of them and he subordinated them successfully to the state because they know that if they step out of the bounds too far of the state, you know, they're able to push on it. They're able to try to influence it. They lobby all of this stuff. But if you go against the general interest of the state, you'll be, you know, dispossessed. And also, I think, too, and this is key, I think, with the sanctions – uh, on certain, you know, Russian businessmen is that the state is going to protect you. So it's actually the sanctions, in my view, have actually increased Putin's power rather than lessened it because of the way this this elite relationship is with the state. In terms of the this most recent economic crisis and also that topic we were discussing earlier about the, the various ways that state power operates in in Russia, we haven't talked about about nationalism and about orthodox religion, and mm -hmm. it seems like an important question is just what flavor of reactionary is Putin and his regime? Is Russia ethno nationalist? Is it pan orthodox chauvinist? Is it pan Slavic nationalist? Nationalism has to be taken very carefully in the Russian context. Um, because Russia has never been, nor is it now, an ethno-nationalist state. It's a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional state. And it has for many, many, many years, if not 200, 300 years, been institutionally configured as such in the sense that certain religions and certain ethnic groups have state recognition um, and as a result of the communist system, to some extent, political autonomy 
and ethno ethnic kind of um, uh, ethnic provinces, like for example Tatarstan, um, it, or Chechnya, for example, or some of the the, the, the small states in the in the North Caucasus. Um, now, Putin certainly has used um, ethno nationalist rhetoric, particularly in two thousand fourteen when he started to speak a lot about the Russian world, the Russian people. He became really the cause of Russian ethnic Russians in Eastern Ukraine and Kazakhstan and all of this stuff became a sudden concern of his to some extent, more of the ones in Eastern Ukraine. But if you think about it, those that rhetoric went in line with geopolitical interests less than a policy of the state. Um, one of the things with regulating nationalism in Russia and politics in general is the Russian state polices the extremes. So one of the things that has happened with the Russian nationalist movements, like the street nationalism, the hardcore ethno, almost neo-Nazi, even in some cases neo-Nazi nationalists, they were part of the, to some extent, of the 2000 protests, 2011-2012 protests. What happened with the annexation of Crimea and the Russian military invention in, in the eastern Ukraine is it sucked a lot of those nationalists up to first off go and actually go fight in that conflict. But also Putin um, was able to co-opt them. So he and then they started to arrest the leadership. A lot of the leadership of these guys that were running around. Uh, in the 2000s and heading like things like the movement against illegal immigration and stuff like this, some of the Eurasianist type people, they've been arrested um, and put in prison. And then the rank and file co-opted. And the rank and file co-opted or basically in disarray or not politically organized. I mean, the nationalist, the, the far nationalist right in Russia is by all intents and purposes decapitated. Yeah, they, you know, beat people up and this kind of stuff, but they're not in my my view, I don't see them as fully organized in any way uh, as a potent force within Russian society. They're there, but you know, um, and so and and the Russian government is very very and Putin in particular is very sensitive about using nationalist language because you know as a multi ethnic state they are very afraid of pogroms, ethnic violence. This has cropped up a couple of times in the last decade or so. Um, and they don't, they're very, they kind of tiptoe around this question of ethnicity. I mean, this is why, for example, Putin every year meets with, you know, religious, is Muslim religious leaders in the Russian Federation. This is why he does video address uh, to um, these mass prayers of Muslims during Ramadan in the center of mosque, in one of the big mosques in Moscow. He he makes statements about how Russia. He's made statements in the past about how Russia's ethno, you know, multi-ethnic character is a quali positive quality of its history. I mean, you know, some rhetoric that <laughs> you you don't you'd be surprised if you know a Trump made it, <laughs> for example. Um, so it, it's it's a dance, and 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 the relationship with I think with with ethno nationalism in Russia by the government from the government's perspective is very instrumentalist. What about? Uh Russian Orthodoxy. Russian Orthodoxy is is even more complicated um, because on the one hand you have the church kind of be put in public life as an institution. In terms of actual religious belief, it's in practice it's really hard to get, gauge. Um, 
most Russians who are Russian Orthodox identify themselves as such. But they don't go to church. They don't go to church. They go to church on Easter, right? Um, but they don't go to church. Very small percentages go to church in every Sunday, for example. I think it's like 3%. Um, there's more, so there's more of a, of an identification with the church and its beliefs. You have a lot of, um, unorganized religious practice in the sense of making pilgrimage to certain holy sites or, you know, these kinds of things that have a long Russian tradition. Um, but there isn't a lot, the, the relationship with the hierarchy of the Orthodox church and the public is very tenuous and very weak. Um, and the Russian Orthodox Church historically has been used more as a symbol by the state than actually having a lot of influence within the state. Um, they, they, it, the majority of its history has been subordinated to the state. And a lot of the pressures the Orthodox Church has been putting on the government for like religious education, uh, you know, instituting orthodoxy in schools they've they've done things like yeah you can have orthodoxy in schools but you also have to be able to have people learn about if they want it's an elective you know islam and other religions too so again i think the orthodox church is more of a political instrument in the institutional level than in terms of any kind of real religious revival what about state church collaboration on things like official homophobia which was a big deal, of, I think, a few years back. Yeah, and even that, even that, I think that has to be put in the context of certain geopolitical con, uh, considerations. It, it is part of a general campaign. Now, you, you know, you have these characters uh, um, running around, um, you know, these politicians who are making these issues a big deal. Uh, you know, the, 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 the anti-gay uh, legislation is definitely kind of one of these things that was generated from below, and push forward and then adopt it from above. Um, and they pass various laws. Uh, but that's all that came in a context of a, a general campaign of anti-Westernism. It came in a context of the 2011, 2012 protests. It came in the context of trying to define for the first time, a sense of what, Putin represents ideologically, and this is where you get this turn towards traditional val so-called Russian traditional values, whatever those are. Um, so the anti-gay homophobia stuff is part of that mechanism, and of course, it has a lot of indigenous, you know, cooperation because Russian society, by and large, is homophobic. And the political, um, the broader political strategic utility here is that homosexuality yeah. can be represented as an external force like the color revolutions that are going to internally destabilize Russia. Right. You get it. Yeah. It, it feeds into this, all this kind of paranoia about the corruption of Russian society, corruption of Russian culture and all of this stuff, which I mean, is ridiculous because Russian society and Russian culture is incredibly cosmopolitan. I mean, it's, just, it's not, it's not behind some sort of sealed hermetically sealed, you know, border or wall where, where, you know, Marvel movies aren't popular. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. Um, but nonetheless, it could be used instrumentally and it could tap into existing sentiment um, in the population. Most vast majority of it is passive, but you, of course you have active elements. Um, you know, you've had some really ugly, ugly, nasty instances of gay people being beaten up and stuff. 
Um, but as, as one gay activist uh, told me, and I wrote an article on this when they were passing this legislation, he said, you know, they'll pass these laws and they'll never enforce them. And I'd be interested to know how many times they've actually enforced this gay propaganda law. Because in Russia, they pass a lot of laws and they selectively enforce them when they need to. I want to turn to the interstate arena. What are Putin's ambitions for Russia's place in the world? And how have they shifted over time? Because earlier in his rule, and I think this is often, if not mostly, forgotten, he was a pretty friendly ally to the U.S., whether that be in the war in Afghanistan, in Middle East negotiations, on the Security Council, really across the board. This is a really interesting story if you look at it from the Russian side, um, because essentially what what is Russia? What is the Russian foreign policy elite want. And here, again, I think we should not just speak Putin, on Putin yeah. as an individual, right? Because they have a foreign policy establishment just like we do. And that is essentially Russia is a great power. Why? Because Russia is a great power. <laughs> because it's Russia. <laughs> you know, we we span 12 time zones. We, we can, we're, we're, we border, you know, Asia. We border Europe. We border the Middle East. Um, Central Asia, et cetera, and we are a big country and therefore, and our historical role since, you know, Catherine the Great or even Peter the Great, if you want to stretch it out, is as a player in geopolitical whatever. And the idea is to have Russia respected as a great power and have Russia seated at a table, at the table of geopolitical negotiations. And when there's a crisis around the world that uh, Russia is brought in and its interests are considered. And it has a role to play in finding a solution or whatever it may be. So a lot of people describe it as essentially what Putin wants. He wants a a new Yalta agreement of respected spheres of influence. uh, The great sovereign powers of the world come together, of which there is only in Putin's mind a few that decide the fates of small states, because this is what great powers do. um, And that's how you create global stability. So, so for example, if you consider how Putin understands sovereignty, sovereign states are states that are allowed and are able to act independently. So you have China, Russia, the United States, Germany, Iran to some extent, uh, maybe Brazil, maybe India, Turkey, that um, are truly sovereign. And therefore, you know, the EU, for example, is a problem because he wants to do bilateral or trilateral relations with great powers. Like Germany. He doesn't think, yeah, like Germany, he doesn't think that, you know, Belgium or Croatia should have any say so. Let alone Lithuania. Germany, <laughs> oh, yeah, have any say so over how, you know, European security is, is conducted. This is why, for example, if you look at what the, the negotiations around Ukraine, he speaks to Merkel and Macron, and then he speaks to Poroshenko. Or if you see what's going on in Syria, he speaks to the Iranians, Erdogan and Netanyahu. Assad is a completely, you know, peripheral figure, <laughs> right? Um, so I think this is this is the type of world he wants. And he wants a world of transactions and deals. And he wants a world of spheres of influence. And this, of course, butts into American global hegemony, which the American policy is you are on our side or you're against us. And the Russians, as you look, I mean, they'll talk to anyone and they do talk to everybody. They talk to the Iranians. They talk to the Israelis. They go, 
You know, Netanyahu flies to Moscow, and the next day the Iranian foreign minister is in Moscow. Um, this is how they see the world. It's a very they they want a very pragmatic uh, relationship. Now, going back to the, Putin's evolution on this, in the early two thousands, he wanted this relationship with the Americans, and he constantly refers to as the you know we need to join together to fight international terrorism, we need to join together to deal with global conflicts. Um, Iraq broke that. The invasion of the unilateral invasion of Iraq from Russia from Russia's perspective was the first in the creation of chaos in the world, in the Middle East in particular. And attempts to reproach the United States to gain that respect, to gain that seat at the table, was constantly rebuffed. And if you think about it, you know, from even uh, foreign policy people in the United States. They didn't bring Russia to the table because they didn't care about Russia. They didn't because Russia was weak and they could expand NATO and Russians couldn't do anything about it. And they were flirting with expanding NATO to to Georgia at this point. Exactly. I mean, they swallowed they swallowed Pol- you know, NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. They swallowed NATO expansion in the Baltics and they couldn't do anything about those things. Um, but in 2007, you see the change. Putin gives a speech in Munich where he says, what is NATO for? We dismantled the Warsaw Pact. We have a right to ask, what is, this, what is the, the, the growth of this alliance for? Who is it against? And what happened to the assurances that we were given under Gorbachev for no NATO expansion? Then he points out, about how unilateral action has created more chaos and death in the Middle East. And basically, this is when you get the turn. And that year in early 2008, the United States NATO makes the Bucharest Declaration that says Ukraine and Georgia will eventually be admitted into NATO and into the EU. Should anyone be surprised that Russia went to war with Georgia in August 2008? Because the the turn is, if we can't work with you, then we're going to flex our muscles. And we're going to create conditions, we saw this in Georgia, and we certainly see this in in eastern Ukraine, to make these states, they will never be admitted into NATO and the EU because we'll make them so um, distasteful (laughs) that the Europeans will never abide by it, will never want Ukraine to be admitted, even if they wanted to in the first place. And then you get in a series of, you know, Putin comes back to power in 2012 and he takes this explicit anti-revolution posture because he feels that the Russian abstention with the, 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 invade, the bombing of Libya, that the Russians were basically lied to, that they agreed in the UN and the the Russian the Americans and NATO took it too and, far. And there's also I read somewhere that he was not pleased with Medvedev's line on that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, I think part of his decision to come back in 2012 could probably possibly be connected to that as well. The Libya operation. Um, and so from his perspective, looking at Moscow, he sees. You know, first off, you see revolutions in Ukraine in 2004. You see another revolution. You see revolutions in Georgia in 2003. The color revolutions. Um, you, the colored revolutions, exactly. You see the expansion of NATO. 
And then you see Libya, the Arab Spring, Syrian civil war. In his, you know, conspiratorial mind, you're like, and then the, the 2011, 2012 protests, right, which he personally pins on Hillary Clinton. In his conspiratorial mind, they're after me. And this is when you really get the real flex. And, and now Russia's military has been modernized. It's in good economic standing. And now you get its aggressiveness outside of its borders, really for the first time since the Afghan war in the early 80s. So there's always quite a bit of pushback whenever anyone suggests that the West may have played some role in making Putin the interventionist political actor he has become today. Mm -hmm. Explain that debate and what you make of it. For the Americans in particular, and the Europeans to some extent, to not see the role that they played in worsening tensions with Russia is an act of willful amnesia that I can't explain. At the same time, the Russians, like I said, why is Russia a great power? Because it's a great power. You know, they they do disregard small states. They don't see why Ukraine should have self-determination of its own political fate. They don't see Georgia or any post-Soviet states that have political determinations that don't coincide with Russian interests to, to, not, to be unacceptable. So, for example, you can just look at the way the Russians reacted to, say, the, the Maidan revolution in Ukraine versus the way they reacted to this, I don't know if you call it or what you call it in Armenia last year or earlier this year. It was two totally different reactions the Russians freaked out about Ukraine because it was couched in EU and with them EU comes NATO. And the Armenians were very, the Armenian opposition was very, very smart to go to Moscow and say, look, this is not about you. Yeah, we're fine with you. We're not, we have no, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're fine with being under Russian, you know, hegemony in the region. You know, this is an eternal affair. We have no desire to join the EU or any of this stuff. So, you know, this is that different reaction speaks to what are Russia's security concerns. But at the same time, I mean, the Ukrainians should be able to decide their own self-determination, however bad their politics may be. But nonetheless, they shouldn't be invaded or, or their territory shouldn't be annexed by Russia. Um, so it, you know. But explaining why Russia is doing does these things is is not excusing it. I think that's something that gets confused in no, the debate a lot. No, absolutely not. Just like why people decided to fly planes into the Twin Towers is not excusing it, though, whenever the people on the American anti-imperialist left have wanted to provide that historical context, it's seen as excusing it, which is obscene. Yeah, yeah. And, and and honestly, they, to go and explain the way the Russian foreign policy establishment sees the world and explaining that means you're excusing it then what's the end game here? Because if you if you say, oh, you're just excusing them, you're just justifying their actions, and you're just placing everything on the West or the United States or whatever. Well, forget the fact that the other side is doing the same thing, right? They're saying it's all the Russians' fault. What's the end game? How 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 is the divisions on these issues ever going to be bridged 
if both sides aren't going to recognize their roles and take an honest look at it, which at this point, both sides don't want to recognize their roles because they want to put it, they want to put it in this framework of each of them is, you know, the victim of some sort of the other. And so RIP start treaty and other, you know, things that might make the world less horrific. I mean, you know, it, I don't know that this is my thing is, is I don't, you know, this increased tension uh, between the United States and Russia, there are legitimate issues that, look, the United States and Russia don't have to be allies. And, and frankly, I don't think the Russians are interested in being allies with anyone um, because they, they want transactional relationships. But they both countries, because of their, their importance in the world, have to find a way to work together in common interests, find where they're not going to agree, and find where they can compromise. And therefore... Taking this kind of extreme posture, um, you know, and manufacture hysteria in some respects isn't going to make the world a better place. It's going to make it even more dangerous. This leads us into the the last issue I want to discuss, which is American Russophobia, which is not which has so many real life consequences, arguably, um, you know, untold numbers of an untold number of, of, of Syrian civilians are being butchered in part as a result of it. It's consequential. I want to ask how how do we get to this point where the far right idolizes Russia as a defender of Western Christendom and liberals paint <laughs> Putin as this wily puppet master behind just about everything that's gone wrong in the world? What? How do we get here? What are American Russophobia's primary characteristics? You've written that deception is a common theme in American portrayals in commonly invoked mm-hmm. terms like compromat. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because uh, let's take the right wing um fantasies and and both of them are fantasies. I think this is really important. This is I describe it as kind of holding up a you know, you, you look at Russia as a mirror. And and some scholars have have written on this. There's an excellent book by David Forlegzong called um The American Mission in the Evil Empire, which looks at this role of America trying to basically turn Russia into a liberal democracy from the late 1800s to the present. Um, anyways, he has this this metaphor he uses called Russia represents a dark mirror. Um, it, I can I also see it in terms of a funhouse mirror where you see a distortion of yourself uh, or you see what you want to see in that mirror. You see the best aspects of yourself. Uh, so for the right, um, there has been a tradition since the mid 19th century of seeing Russia as this, you know, Christian bulwark against Islam. Um, you can go and look up images of Alexander II dressed as a crusader uh, in Harper's Magazine, for example, in the 1860, 1860s wow. against the Turks. So there is there is a strain that goes back quite, you know, to the mid 19th century of Russia being a complement to the United States as a continental empire, as multi-ethnic, as Christian against the, you know, the yellow and brown hordes, right? They're not, they're, they're unique. They have their own sense of manifest destiny. They have their own sense of, uh, you know, they're European, but not European. They reject European imperialism kind of stuff. And many of them are very, in terms of skin tone, white, <laughs> yeah, they kind of look like us, even though they have, they're not fully, you know, we don't know what they are, but they kind of look white. So yeah, so it kind of, it, it really goes into this uh, American conservative imagination, I think, as a possible brethren 
of sorts. Um, even Walt Whitman has lines uh, in about Russia and as a kindred spirit of the United States. So this this tradition goes back a long way, uh, and and unfortunately the the American right, some elements of it have somehow bought revived this idea, um, which is totally preposterous, but whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think it, it it reflects a certain kind of uh, a desire for. Uh, that looking for Russian American conservatism is kind of under stress, right? The world is changing a lot. You gay marriage, all of these things that are a front to their, you know, sense of themselves, uh, you know, of course, immigration, the changing contours of the demographics of the United States. So they look, try to find some other example or some other kind of desirable thing outside of themselves, right? And here you can look through to, to Russia or the European right or whatever it may be. Liberals, um, you know, have a flip side of this, where Russia is not the, you know, protector of Christendom, white Christendom against the brown and yellow hordes, but is the corrosive evil uh, that's trying to, you know, uh, infiltrate and infect our society. And this is it's you know, quasi Oriental in this in this uh, framework. It's incredibly Orientalist. Yeah, the Orientalist is, ism is, is quite striking, and there's certain I would go so far to say that it also touches on almost like a racial character. Um, that I think is it would be interesting for someone to investigate. But so you know, Russophobia is something the Russian government uses anytime it can. It, Somebody doesn't like what the Russians are doing. That's Russophobia, right? It, you're just Russophobic. This is why you're doing it. The thing is, is that there is Russophobia, and, and I've thought about it a lot, and the definition I've come up with it is Russophobia is when you position Russia as an imminent civilizational threat. When Russia is posed as an other that seeks to infect, corrupt, West, so-called Western civilization, this is what Russophobia is. So with the language of Russia, Russia, under, Russia undermining our, the foundations of our electoral system, Russia you know, sowing disorder and chaos, corrupting our whatever, this to me is, is the expression of Russophobia. And what it, it does two things. First off, it allows for a certain kind of displacement. So if you paint Russia as this infectious disease that's backing, say, a Donald Trump, um, it allows for a displacement in saying, okay, Trump isn't from us. He's a foreign agent. Uh, therefore, he doesn't, he's an anomaly within our good character. Yeah, you cite, you cite a clinical definition of phobia, the quote, displacing an internal conflict to an external object symbolically related to the conflict, which seems about right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, and, and we should also say that Trump's election is a certain trauma, right? So how do you displace the trauma on the, on this, on the, away from the self than onto another? So Russia kind of plays this role as, as acting as the displaced, you know, crisis, Right. So you it's not, you know, the Democrats or Hillary Clinton and their political campaign or the candidate. It's the other that's coming in and trying to destroy us. Right. It's not the self. The other thing it does. And here you get this constant opposition of Russia versus the so-called West. Well, by placing Russia outside of the West, you're reconstituting the qualities of the West. You're reconstituting what that Western what, what the West means as not Russia. As not Russia. And it's interesting to me that when the West is under 
crisis because of 2008, because of the Greece, because of, you know, Brexit, because of all of these things, you get Russia acts as a way to reconstitute those values you see in opposition to Russia. So, you know, multiculturalism or whatever, it may, liberalism, whatever it may be. And Ukraine, actually, in my view, plays a very interesting role here. Because at the very moment in which you have this revolution in Ukraine, this desire to become part of the EU or something like this, where the EU itself is under a lot of stress and question, people can say, well, yeah, we have our problems, but look, the Ukrainians still want to be part of us. So Ukraine plays this really interesting role that I've been thinking about how it allows for the reestablishment of the, you know, the liberal democratic project, right? It's the return of, you know, capital H history that's fallen apart in the last 20 years <laughs> in a way, right? So th this is, I think, Russia plays an important psychological symbolic role in American political culture that, uh, that is really interesting right now. And it's a total misunderstanding of what actual the Russian, the way the Russian state works. And a total misunderstanding of the way our own state works. It, in the case of the Russian hacking and their web-based propaganda that's been alleged uh, against them, and I think persuasively, I, I think they did it, <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah, and I think Mueller should investigate. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, but, yeah. but the political culture surrounding this is really bad in the U.S. Um, and I think you're right that it, it it is really a funhouse mirror to our already pretty twisted political culture and society because, yeah. I mean, the hacked emails were real emails that made it clear yeah. that the DNC, what well, we already knew, that the DNC was deeply shitty. <laughs> and the and the face yeah. the Facebook groups or whatever, like woke blacks, they, they were caricatures of our already really weird and dysfunctional political culture. And, and so the idea that the problem is the exposure of the emails rather than the mm -hmm. political hacks who wrote the emails and that that the problem is this you know facebook disinformation more so than the political culture that that disinformation was was spoofing accidentally spoofing it, it just seems so way off we live in this this world where you know russian associated militants shoot down an airplane i mean that's horrific but it simply doesn't yeah. matter that the us did the same and <laughs> well, and where it, this outsized demonization of Russian influence in the internal affairs of a country that historically interferes in other countries by pulling off coup d'etats or launching straight up invasions. For me, for me, the, the this idea of Russia's apparent or influence over the outcome of the American election is and the the pushing of this by pundits and media people and politicians, it to me, it really reveals what they think about democracy. Because there's no way the American public or a sizable portion of the American public would elect this guy. Therefore, you know, which they believe, however wrongly, that he's working in their interests, right? Therefore, it's not the American public are dupes. And they were manipulated. They don't have political agency in a way. They're only passive figures that are easily manipulated by others. And in my view, the real offense of these people is that the manipulation of the American electorate was always seen as their peer view, 
not that of a foreign which power. Which is why, which is why the demonization <laughs> of Putin coincides with this demonization of populism. Like the idea that the demos is yeah. is is activated is is what's terrifying to them, not what not what yeah. should be terrifying about Trump. And you're absolutely right. The Russians, they pissed all over the American election as much as they could. And I, I imagine that they're amazingly <laughs> surprised how little little resources they put in to cause such hysteria and freak out. Um, and, and, you know, it absolutely should be investigated and something should be done yes, about definitely. it. Like- but honestly, like I was listening to an interview yesterday on NPR about this uh, Maria Butina woman with the NRA, and they were suggesting that her, her pro-gun group that she created in Russia in 2012 is somehow part of some sort of long-term plot that it was actually created with the intent of infiltrating the NRA rather than dealing with actual trying to press for gun rights in Russia, which to me sounds completely psychopathic (laughs) (laughs) and narcissistic. Well, Rachel Maddow basically suggested that Trump's agreement with Kim Jong-un to discontinue or pause or whatever uh, joint military exercises with South Korea was a favor to Putin. I mean, it all like it always in in, the like MSNBC liberals have just truly jumped the shark on all this shit. Yeah, no, I I know I could I could go on and rant about it, um, but I don't know if your listeners would be interested. But uh... well, do do you want to do you want to any like closing thought you want to add to to tie anything together? Russia. The Russian government are not good guys. I mean, it's plain to see the way they operate within their own country. You don't need to be any any person on the left uh, should recognize the the types of, of political control and the authoritarian measures that that state takes on its own population. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't overblow the power and control that this government has not only over its own population. There's lots of room for maneuver. There's lots of things going on in that country. Uh, And their power to influence outside of it is quite limited. And they understand that. Um, I think that the Russians are, and a lot of people say this, they're playing a a weak hand very well. Look at the Syria intervention where where the U.S., would have had to spend so much more blood and treasure to quick in a quixotic effort to overthrow Assad, whereas they could just sort of surgically intervene to protect an already existing regime. And and so, you know, I don't I don't describe Russia as an enemy. I don't even describe it as a rival. Actually, I think Trump is right by describing it as a competitor. I think that's a perfect, a very good way. And And they present a challenge. They present a challenge for the United States. They present a challenge for Europe, uh, and therefore they should be treated as a challenge. And and how that challenge is treated should be proportional into the actual you know concerns that it raises. Um, I don't. I honestly, going back to what I said earlier, painting Russia as some sort of and Putin personally as some sort of all powerful figure doesn't get us to bridge the conflict. It only polarizes it and again i wonder what is the end game on that note sean guillory thank you very much thanks dan i'm glad you're covering russia
Sean Guillory is the host of the SRB Podcast, a weekly podcast on Eurasian politics, culture, and history, who works at the Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that one will never succeed with the master key of a historico-philosophical theory whose supreme virtue consists in being supra-historical. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.